Good morning. My name is Davis, and I am one of the pastors here at Hope. And it is a joy to be able to share this morning with you all God's word and what he has for us. I want to get started, though, by thinking of, I don't want to call it one of the greatest movies ever made, but within the genre of pre-streaming, it, it happens to be on TV, and so I have to finish watching it now, back when TV and, and movies had commercials. Within that genre, this movie might be top of its class, and that movie is Groundhog Day. I watched that movie again this weekend, and, and if you haven't seen it, Bill Murray, that's who you see on the screen here, he, he's just stolen Puxatani Phil, and, and the context of the movie is, is his character is stuck in this endless loop of reliving the same day over and over again. Every day he wakes up, it's Groundhog Day, and he's in the same place, in the same location. And, and when he catches wind of this, when he realizes that he's, for whatever reason, stuck in this endless cycle of living the same day over and over again, he, he finds himself at a, at a watering hole, talking to some other guys, and he, and he says this quote. He says, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same, and nothing that you did mattered. He says this, and the guys at the bar with him, one of them kind of grunts and says, well, that about sums it up for me. And, and he's not even a guy that's reliving the same day over and over again. And, and I think this line strikes a chord uh, humorously with us because there's a little bit, at least a little bit, of a kernel of truth in it. Um, even when it was made in the 90s before COVID and, and being stuck in one place, literally in our homes, most of the time where we feel like we're in this repetitive cycle, uh, this quote says something uh, to us. And I'll come back to, to this movie a little bit later, but we're in a series right now in the book of Psalms. And this is actually the second to last message in this series. The Psalms have been uh, a wonderful place to just camp out, especially in the midst of everything going on. Um, this book is right in the middle of your Bible and it's a collection of 150 poems. And, and we've captured probably some, like 12 of them. And so next week, Pastor Core is gonna wrap us up uh, with this series. And, and I'm told he's gonna do all 138 remaining in one message. It'll be a nice buggy ride through Psalms. That's not true. Uh, today's message, though, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 24. And the, the title comes from actual words that are within the Psalm. And that is, who is this King of glory? And if you wanted to follow along with the slides that you're going to see on your screen, you can go to hopecc.com slash slides. And there's also a place to look at notes if you'd rather have that. And that's just hopecc.com slash notes. And what we're going to do is I'm just going to read right through the psalm. It's only 10 verses, and there's a lot to be said about these 10 verses. And so we're just going to take it one chunk at a time from there. So the psalm begins and says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god? They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He 
is the king of glory. The structure of the Psalms is, is such that it's, it's framed kind of around this question of who. There's three questions of who that we'll kind of break down with our time together this morning. And the first one is who or what is behind all things. When I was in college, I took this, this class that you see on your screen right here. It's, it's the first science class I ever took in college. It's called Biogeography of the Global Garden. And I remember when I signed up for it, I, I'm thinking to myself, I know what each of these words are on their own. Biogeography, somewhat know what that is, I guess. Uh, global, just expansive around the whole world. And garden, yeah, you, know, you have those in your backyard usually. When you put those together, though, I'm not exactly sure what this class is going to entail. I just know it has to do with the sciences, and I got to get some science credit in. Uh, it ended up being a pretty great class. I took it with my brother, and so we had uh, opportunity to kind of complain about it together, as you do in, in college classes. Uh, but this was the first time when I took this class that I really began to critically think about the origin of the world and all that's found within uh, this global garden, of, as the class says. Uh, where does it come from? Why does it exist? Uh, who or what made these things? Philosopher John Frame puts it this way. He says, the great question actually confronting modern humanity is this. Granted that the universe contains both persons, you and me and, and, and all of us who are here, and impersonal structures such as matter, motion, chance, time, space, and, and physical laws, which is actually fundamental? Is the impersonal aspect of the universe grounded in the personal, or is it the other way around, such that the personal is grounded in the impersonal? And the beginning of Psalm 24 wastes no breath, wastes no ink in stating boldly it's, it's personal. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all the people who live in it belong to a personal God. Why? For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Within the whole book of Psalms, the 150 poems that are written there, this question, who or what is behind all things, is answered in so many different ways, constantly pointing back to this personal God. I, I just pulled three instances for our time this morning. The first one comes from Psalm 65. And here we learn that God is the one who's actually watering the earth like you would your own lawn or garden. The psalmist says to God, you care for the land and you water it. You, rich it, you enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain for so you have ordained it. God, you drench its furrows and you level its ridges. You soften it with showers and you bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. Another one from Psalm 135 says that God is the one who's actually sending lightning and even the wind like we had this weekend multiple times over in the heat. I know that the Lord is great, he says, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. And my personal favorite, in Psalm 145, we learn that God is the one who provides the needs for every living thing, every living creature that lives on the earth. He says, the eyes of all look to you, God. And you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. God is the ultimate personal being 
behind all the things that exist, not only in our world, but within the universe. In the midst of quarantine, I have been uh, reading some different genres, and one of the ones, especially with our time in the Psalms that I've been picking up, is poetry. And I think I found a new hero. Her name is Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, she, she lived in the late 1700s, and she wrote prolifically uh, about God in her poems. And uh, this poem in particular comes from a poem that she calls uh, Thoughts on Providence. In other words, just thinking on God providing for the world like those psalms did. I just want to read you her word. She says, All wise, almighty providence we trace in trees and plants and all the flowery race. As clear as in the noble frame of man, all lovely copies of the maker's plan. The power the same that forms a ray of light that called creation from eternal night. Let there be light, he said, from his profound. Old chaos heard and trembled at the sound. Swift as the word inspired by power divine, behold the light around its maker shine. The first fair product of the omnific God, and now through all his works diffused abroad. The layers of the ways that she is just processing the world around her and seeing all the things that exist, almost like a sunbeam, that if you were to just trace it back to where its source is, you would see God, the personal being behind all that exists. So when the psalmist says that the earth is the Lord's and all things in it, he wants us to see that there in fact is a personal being who made all that we know, and like Pastor John talked about last week, you can just look at a tree and consider that this came from a maker or a designer. But Psalm 24 is inviting us to take a step even beyond that, to think about all of the things that we actually love and enjoy in this life, even within our personal relationships, the qualities of others that we've come to enjoy. Things like creativity or kindness, compassion, justice, humor, all of these qualities or personality traits are not just random byproducts of chemical reactions taking place within us, but they actually reveal uh, an ultimate permanent source of these things. Friendship shows us that there is an ultimate friend and his name is God. Laughter points us to the ultimate belly laugher or joke teller. God is the ultimate parent, judge, friend. And Psalm 24 is inviting us to first just fix our attention on this. And when you do, you start to feel this sense of unworthiness. You start to feel this question rise up, which is, how do I, how do I get to this God? If this is true, that all these things that I've come to enjoy actually find their fullest extent in a source, how do I get to him? And that's where our psalmist takes us this morning. The next verse is actually, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The image is one of a mountain here within our psalm. It's meant to evoke a concept of height or loftiness or having to climb to a place that we are not yet. And his answer is, is profound. He, he, he moves from a physical realm into more of uh, a spiritual one in which he actually says, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol 
or swear by a false god. Federico Villanueva, in his uh, commentary on the Psalms in the Asia Bible Commentary series, says about this very verse, there are four specific qualifications. The first two are parallel. You have clean hands and you have a pure heart. And these represent the external and the internal elements of a person's life. The two go together. We would say of a person who is innocent, there's no blood on his or her hands. His or her conscience is, in fact, clear. In Isaiah, this is a, a, book, this is a prophet in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, and when I was reading this psalm, he was the first guy that came to my mind. Because if there is a guy who meets these qualifications that Frederico is pointing us to, namely clean, clean hands and a pure heart, it's Isaiah. And he has this encounter with God in the sixth chapter. And I just want to read it to you because the imagery is very stark and very similar to what we're finding here in Psalm 24. And it's quite profound. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord, and he was high and exalted. He was seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. They had two wings that covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. You have this creature that is just beyond the world with six wings, two of them covering their face, this is probably pretexting and driving laws. I don't actually know if there, if there were flying laws, if it was like a cover your face. I, I detract from the point here. There are these creatures with these six wings and they can't even look at God. That's why they're covering their face and they're just screaming in song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're singing this song repetitively and at the sound of their voices, not even God's voice, but these creatures around him, the doorposts and the thresholds shake and the temple is filled with smoke. Imagine that image right now. If the soundboard in the back was just to turn up the bass and you got subwoofers in your living room and as I speak, the, the ground begins to shake a little bit and we run some smoke machines over in your family room and the thing's starting to fill up. Wouldn't even come close to what these guys are seeing in this room. And what is Isaiah's response going to be to this scene? How is he going to answer the question? Who can ascend to this God? This is what he's like in his holiness. Not even the creatures who are with him 24-7 can even look at him. Isaiah's response is to be brought very low. He's humbled and he says, woe is me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty, and I am ruined. And interestingly, this is, this is his very job. His job is to speak about God. And in beholding this holy God, the place that he feels touched the most, the place that he feels most inadequate is the very thing he does all day long, which is to write about and communicate who is this God. He is majestic, and I have fallen so short of my ability to even capture the ultimate personality behind all that exists. The second category that Frederico didn't mention, though, is, is this concept of idols or swearing to false gods. So who can ascend to the mountain? One who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, the psalm says. Now, idolatry and what's happening here within the psalm, this, this idea of, of not swearing to a false god 
or trusting in an idol is meant to uncover a little bit more of how sin works. Namely, that sin is not just something that we do. It's not a behavior, but it operates on a much more fundamental level than that. Because before sin is a behavior or something that we like activate upon or do, it's first a posture of the heart. So take the Ten Commandments, for example. This is, this is the decree that God gave his people in the Old Testament. He, he said, this is, this is what life will look like. If you, this is what a life well lived will look like. If you do these things, and he gives them the Ten Commandments and what it looks like to be in his presence, this holy God. But interestingly, as we've studied these Ten Commandments throughout church history, a common conclusion has been met, and that is this. You can't break the latter nine commandments without breaking the first one. That first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so when the psalmist is talking about not trusting in an idol or swearing by a false god, this is what he's getting after. Namely, that before you do anything that's sinful in the eyes of God, there's something that's happened in your heart first. There is a turning away from God and a wanting after something that isn't God that takes place in the human heart. In other words, an idol is anything that sits in the driver's seat of your life. It's anything that your heart looks at and just says, want. And because these things are hard to identify, it's much easier to look at something like lying, a behavior that we do and go, yeah, it's probably not a good thing to do within a relationship of any kind. But before we lie, there's something that we perceive in our heart that is worth lying for. There's an idol that we've given ourselves over to, that we've lifted ourselves up to that says, this is worth lying for. It's difficult to get in there and see what's underneath the surface in our hearts. It's difficult to just categorize these things. So one way I like to think about it is, is through this concept of idle x-ray questions. In other words, how do you get after what, what are these things that I want in the place of God? And often these are done best in the context of community like a small group or trusted friends and resources to really dig in and ask these questions like what's underneath the surface for me, And I just got four of them this morning that I want us to consider together as a church, to do business with God as we consider what Psalm 24 has for us. The first question is this. In the midst of all things happening here in 2020, what is it that I worry about most? What do I rely on when things go bad or get difficult? What do I turn over to? when things are hard? What do I think about most easily? What preoccupies my thoughts when I have nothing else to do, when work can be put down at the end of a day and I just have time to myself? What do I think about most easily? What makes me feel the highest sense of self-worth, that I am actually enough in the eyes of others, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of myself at the end of the day? that I am enough. And there's something about that last question in particular that I think you start to get closer to the center of what are my idols? What are your idols? What are our idols together? And in probably the best book I've read in the last year, it's called Seculosity, and the subtitle is, is my favorite of it all. Ready for this? Seculosity, how, it's a little small for me from here, so I'll read it on here. How parenting 
technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. And this is what the author says. He says, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough. What makes me feel like I'm enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety and the loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. And he wrote this, I think a year or two ago, before these things even turned up higher in our society division that plagues our moment. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough we would be enough. That is the sound of the idol preaching to us. If you do this, you will have life. If you continue to try harder, you will arrive and you will be enough. But what David Zoll here in this book touches on is that these things can never deliver on their promises. They will never bring us to that place. In fact, for all you Hamilton lovers out there, The song of the idol is you will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. You will never arrive at that which you're seeking in these things. Psalmist goes on, they will receive blessing from the Lord. Those who do this, they will receive that vindication from God, their savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And and interesting, just a word about this. Such is the generation of those who do this. David's writing this at a time, uh, 700 years before Christ even hits the scene. And God has chosen a people. And this is true that if if you do this, there's a pathway to get to God up this mountain. And there's this question of, are we going to get there? Are we going to arrive? And as the New Testament unfolds, we see that not even this generation had the abilities. They didn't have the chops to do that. So who can get to God? Those four qualifications, clean hands, a pure heart, those who have not trusted in an idol, or swear, or swear falsely by a false God. Now we're brought to the last question of our psalm, and it comes directly from these last three verses, and that is, who is the king of glory? It's very poetic in its language. It says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. We're brought from the scenery of a mountain in in that second part of the psalm where we're looking up at the loftiness of God and we're wondering who can do this to all of a sudden being outside of a gate. And at first it's kind of jolting and poetry can do this to you sometimes where it's like, I thought we were in a mountain and now all of a sudden I'm standing in front of a gate. I don't understand what's going on here. Well, I think the message is actually the same. At least it's similar. And that is in the same way that you can't necessarily scale a mountain easily, so too a gate acts as a barrier. The mountain of God shows God as exalted and lifted up this direction apart from us. 
And this gate that we're standing outside of shows that we have not gained access or entrance to the presence of God. My favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time, yeah, I said it, of all time, now it's got to live up to its name, uh, comes from a sermon that he gave called The Weight of Glory. And he says this about gates and this idea of feeling cut off from the presence of God. He says, all of us actually have a lifelong nostalgia, a longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside. Did you hear that? He's saying all of us, regardless of where you are in life, regardless of your walk in life, we feel that same sense of, of nostalgic, something's off. I'm somehow on the outside of the door to the heart of reality. I sense that love should look like this, but none of my relationships reflect that perfectly, not even the best relationships I'm in. And so with that image of standing at the foot of a mountain or standing on the outside of a gate, what modern solutions might we bring to this? As I was thinking this week on, on, on this psalm, a few of them came to my mind. Uh, the modern solutions to scaling the mountain or opening the gate look something similar to getting the right equipment or maybe hitting the gym so that you, you grow your muscles a little bit so you can open that gate. Maybe if you're not of that variety, it looks like surrounding yourself with the right people that teach you how to climb that mountain or open that gate. Or my favorite, the one that I heard most often when I was in college, was fake it until you make it. Oh, you're not at the top of that mountain? Just pretend you are, and someday you'll be at the top of the mountain. Oh, you're not on the inside of the gate? Act like it, and then you will arrive. Interestingly, the psalmist takes a very different approach. The psalmist simply says that the cure to these gates being closed or being at the foot of the mountain is that the word of God needs to say, be lifted up, O gates. Ancient doors that have been closed for so long be opened. And why? Because the king of glory has made his entrance. Someone of great renown has entered the scene and these gates are now opened for him. This ancient door that has been closed for so long, unopenable by our own hands, is now just simply told, be opened. And who then is this king of glory is the right question to ask. Now, that same language of king of glory or lord of glory is actually opened up for us in the New Testament in the, in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and listen to these words. He says, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I love that. The wisdom of this age that is coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has actually been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Not just his glory, our glory too. God has destined this mysterious message. None of the rulers understood this. If they did, they would not have, and here it is, crucified the Lord of glory. The king of glory in Psalm 24, according to 1 Corinthians, is Jesus, the one who cru was crucified for our sins. But what I love about the way the Bible works is that it's never meant to just give us a pat answer. 
In other words, it's never meant to just say Jesus, like you might hear in Sunday school. I love the tagline here. The, 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 the kids in Sunday school would often play the odds with their teacher. When she's asking, hey, who left the, the, the lid off the pace? All the kids resort together. Jesus. Maybe not this time. But the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't work like that. He is the solution. He is the answer. But it's the, the way the, the word of God works is it's ne- never meant to just bring us to a place where we say, I get it. I got it right. I understand. Instead, the message of the Bible is always meant to change us by bringing us into the presence of Jesus, by telling us who he's like. It actually looks a lot more like Groundhog Day. The solution for Phil Connors, who's stuck in this infinite loop, living the same day over and over again, is very subtle. He falls in love with the other main character. Her name is Rita. And he spends so much time with her studying her, he first tries to manipulate her so that uh, she falls for him and it doesn't work. But soon you start to see this change in him as a character and he really starts to just be enamored by her, to want to, to get to know her more, just to spend time with her, even though he's living the same day over and over again. And she's just, this is the first time she's done these things. He just wants to spend time with her. And there's this profound scene where she is asking him, uh, or he's starting to say to, to her, I, I, I know all the people here. And she says, well, do you know me? And he says, yeah, I do know you. I know that you, you're a producer, but you want more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh. And she says, well, everybody knows that. And he says, okay, well, I know that you love boats, but not the ocean. I know that your family and you take a vacation every summer up to the mountains. And, and there's this long dock. And at the end of that dock, there's this boathouse with missing rafters in the roof. And there's this little um, cave that you like to crawl in under there just to be alone. I know that you're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very kind to strangers and children, and you're exceedingly generous. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. And when, and when Phil Connors starts to describe this, there's this silence that you as the viewer, when you're watching this movie, that takes place in you, where you start to see him change. And so too for us, when we encounter the word of God, it's not to meant to make us arrive at this place of just saying Jesus is the answer. It's instead meant to drive us to the question, who is this person, Jesus? What has he done? What does it look like to to know him and to spend time with him, to know the shape of this good news that he is telling us about this cross on which he died? Jesus is this king of glory. And to ask the question, how did he get, how was he mighty in battle is one of the ways that we start to unfold the message of the Psalms for us in this present moment here in 2020. One of the stories uh, that that God in his kindness just kind of brought me to as I was reading Psalm 24 was in Acts 3. Um, And and the timing of the book of Acts, it's, it's the last narrative that you get on the tail end of Jesus dying for our sins and coming back from the dead and then ascending to the right hand of the Father. And right after that, God is starting his church throughout the Middle East until it reaches the the modern world. And in chapter three, there's a story of this man who is said to be lame from birth, meaning his legs don't work and they never have in his entire life. And he's lived an entire life without working legs. 
And the career opportunities at that time for somebody of that state were very low. And so he had people every day bring him to this gate. This gate was called beautiful, according to Acts 3. And he would simply beg. He'd simply have his hands out and he would hope people would put money into his hands. And, and two guys, Peter and John, are walking to that temple on which the gate stands on the outside. And they see this man and they see his hands out and they see him asking for money. And Peter makes eye contact with him and he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he does. And he does more than this. He gets up and he praises God and he skips and he leaps and joy is exuding for him. He's never felt what it's like to have these ligaments connected in this area of his body where his brain is telling his legs to move. And they are. And he's exceedingly joyful. And what happens next is the most important part of the story. And I want to read it to you, and I want you to pay close attention to what does and doesn't happen here in Acts 3 after this man is healed. It says, while the man held on to Peter and John, so thankful, all the people were astonished, and they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, that this crowd is gathering, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know has been made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, for this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that this Messiah would suffer, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of, ref that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Did you catch that? Did you catch how right after this miracle takes place where this man is given the ability to physically walk again, what doesn't happen is more physical healings. In a crowd that size, you have to imagine there are more suffering from the same condition as this man. But Peter sees the people gathering and he says, what you see happening within this man's physical body is a picture of all of us spiritually that we have all turned from God towards idols and false gods that have never delivered. And we've been unable to walk when it comes to the things of him. But he doesn't leave the message there. He actually instead says, this Jesus who healed this man physically is available for you. That he is here now. 
And spiritual times of refreshment are available to you that change the way you interact with the world around you. Peter is saying to all of the crowd and all of us, we are this man. And the solution to that problem, the solution to that feeling of being on the outside of that gate is not for us to get up and climb the mountain. We can't, our legs don't work. It's not for us to to crawl over to the gate and try and open it. We can't. We don't even know where to begin. The solution is instead that God came down the mountain in the person of Jesus, that he lived a sinless life, not giving himself over to idols or swearing by false gods, that he, in fact, as the psalm says, is the one who had clean hands and a pure heart, and that he gave himself up willingly for us, that we might look like this man, seeing the gates around us open, seeing God come down the mountain, that we might know him and rejoice greatly, that we might be enamored by this Jesus, that we might call on him as the king of glory of our lives, not ourselves, nor our ability to arrive by our own strength. And so this morning, I have a personal and a a communal application for us. The personal one is this. Will you or where might God be asking you just to see more of Jesus as the gate-lifting king of glory in your life? Where has your joy been emptied so that you look more like the Phil O'Connor who hasn't met Rita yet, who's just feeling stuck in the same place drudging along, wondering, does any of this even matter? Jesus is calling us to look onto him and let his entrance lift these gates so that, as Peter says, times of refreshment may come to you even now. And so too, as a church, where might God be asking us to see more of Jesus as the gate-lifting king of glory in our church and our city? We're gonna need to hold both grief and hope in tandem and the gospel affords us the ability to do that in this season. 